Thank you for joining us again for another uh, Saturday Academic Archers Omnibus. We've got two papers from uh, previous presenters today and then we're going to look at a video and we did get this to work earlier between Nicola and I, so hopefully you remember what happened last week. If it is, I'll just share the link with you and we can all look at it and then come back to the conversation. So welcome Academic Archers Research Fellows, old and new, to our world of analysing and laughing at life in Ambridge. Uh, as I said, three papers today, we'll do the paper and then a chat, paper and a chat, and then go to the video and have a chat after that. Um, as ever, I have muted you all now on your microphones and if you can keep your microphone muted, particularly when the person is giving their presentations, you hear absolutely everything that goes on in the background, the moving of your mug of tea on your desk or whatever it might be, you, you hear absolutely everything. A lot of you I see are using the chat already and that's great and that's a place to put your comments in uh, or to ask questions and Nicola and I will be looking at that as we go through the session. You can also, um, I don't know where it will be exactly on your screen, it will depend what kind of device you're using or laptop or whatever system, but you can kind of put your hand up on that um, and that will alert me that you'll have a question and we'll come to you, I'll unmute you and then you can ask your question and do that. The presenters and myself, when we come to do the presentations, they will share their screen with you. You don't need to do anything, you don't need to press anything, you just need to make sure that your volume is up. And all it will do is just change what you see on your screen. It doesn't interfere with your computer or your phone in any way, it just changes what you see. And it means that they'll just flip through the slides with you, basically. Um, and that's, that's it. So I'm going to hand over to Nicola. We've got three to get through today in our just over an hour. They are, of course, fantastic. Uh, papers, but I will hand over to Nicola now, if I can just get to unmute Nicola. And hey everybody. Oh, hang on. Am I, uh, can you hear me? Yes. Nod, please, if you can. Yay. Um, morning, all. Just a gentle reminder for you to post your Easter bonnets on Twitter, the virtual tweet-along bonnet parade. I can't remember who's organising it, but this is mine, as you can see. It's very elegant. I would just like to begin by thanking our four patrons on Patreon. I think the donation comes out at the end of the month. And our 20 donations on the ticket, Taylor. You are generous, you lot. Right, but since we've got so much to get through this morning, we're gonna get on with it. Dr. Jerome Te uh, Turner, I was gonna say Taylor Turner, uh, we've got hats on the brain, Jerome, um, with his excellent branded university official crest behind him. Um, has returned more than once to um, his interest in Archer's fans. He was a star of the fandom panel in Reading where we turned our gaze firmly inward, uh, some would say upwards, to seek to explore the aspects of Archer's fandom. That is available for you on YouTube in full. We will return to these papers at a future Saturday Omnibus and um, Cara, I think, wants to say something at the end about the book that's going to be forthcoming on us talking about ourselves, talking about the archers. <laughs> so, the, um, there's, there's, just in case you've forgotten, the super group was Claire Asbury, Sarah Kate Mary, Helen Burrows and Jez Turner, the fandom home team. So, um, without further ado, I will go over to Dr. Jerome Turner. Hello. Can you hear me? 
Yes, right. Okay, I've got a little thing to play us in with first, which you may or not may or not be able to hear. Hold on. And that is my own home scored uh, music box score. So there you go. So that's our theme tune for today. Maybe that could be a tradition people continue to do. I don't know. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm Jerome from uh, Birmingham City uh, University from the Centre for Media and Cultural Research at the university. Um, and I'm going to kind of repeat um, the previous uh, paper I did in 2019, um, but with um, an extra bit of the literature that I'm covering um, in the journal article I'm working out of this. Um, so if I just open up my PowerPoint first and share that with you. Um, okay, so uh, the interesting thing to do, so if I share screen. Now, I'm assuming you can see that there, but if I view slideshow, does that? Right. Okay, great. So, um, uh, this paper presents the findings of a listener survey that I ran um, last year. Um, if, yeah, okay. Um, I'm just seeing a, an alert saying my internet connection is unstable, so I may have to go and kick the kids off the Xbox if that remains a problem. Um, so I wanted to present the findings of a listener survey I ran exploring uh, listening practices. This was a, obviously a year ago. Um, and we're all listening to the arches in possibly slightly different ways now, less of it anyway, at least. Um, and I was interested in looking at the association we have with the show. Um, so I'm actually gonna, um, I won't play the video of this, but um, I sometimes uh, play the arches on um, commuting and playing Minecraft on the train. So I had this really weird experience of uh, um, people dealing with sheep in the archers and me dealing with sheep in Minecraft, essentially. But you can find um, the, the playthrough of that on YouTube video. Oh, hold on. So um, that kind of weird experience had got me wondering about how people's experience of the show might have changed over the years and what that might reflect about how we use media today. So um, to, in, the initial, in the original presentation, I had one slide of theory, but I've got a bit more. But the stereotype of the archers listener is that it's in the kitchen, it's somebody doing chores, um, and this aligns with um, Sean Moore's and Hobson's work situating radio in the family home and its routines. Um, but Hobson also talks about it being like a lifeline to the outside world. So this ties quite neatly into Raymond Williams' theory of mobile privatization, which is an idea of media being um, something that is increasingly about choice as you kind of 
are given more choice. It gives the audiences more choices of what they consume and it takes the viewer out of the home. So the idea that it's mo mobilizing somebody out of the home. Um, so it's less about mass consumption and more about people being empowered and having agency. And then as the technologies allowed it, scholars such as Bull and Degay have stressed the significance of being able to locate that to the individual um, with the Walkman and now of course with smartphones. So at this point, I'm skipping to a slide with lots of references on it, because this is where I kind of dive into some of the extra contextual work I've been doing working on the journal article of this. Um, so I'm going to go through this as quickly as possible. Um, so the article uses a study of the Archers listeners to help us understand the role of radio media for them in a world of expanding delivery technologies. But it's first necessary to understand the wider context of that. So the arrival of radio in the home essentially disrupted family life in various ways. If we see um, online delivery through platforms such as BBC Sounds as technological in innovation, this is only one step in the ongoing journey of constantly evolving media technologies. So Sean Moores in his oral history work exploring early experiences of UK radio in the 20s and 30s noted the disturbance to daily routines and I've just done air quotes and I've realised you can't see my air quotes because I'm screen sharing um, and social division between household members as radio was introduced to the home so it was quite disruptive and and actually before loudspeakers were a feature on radios listeners were limited to using headphones so in contrast to um, later headphones use in more mobile media technologies such as the Walkman and um, Moores describes household men listening and women being excluded um, so such a picture, that kind of picture draws down clearly, clearly from media scholar David Morley's early work on television and the familial power and tensions tied up in the wielding of the remote control. So this early sense of radio causing tensions in the home is worth noting when we later come to look at some of the accounts of Archer listeners that I, that I got from the survey. Um, but as the technology became more widely available and less the man's toy to tinker with until he received a good signal, Moore's then tracks radio's place more broadly within the household and the family. So the technology kind of developed to enable this repositioning, but so also did the broadcasters approach. So broadcasters were framing audiences as the family and organising programming around daily household routines and more specifically the idea of the housewife. Um, so with this came the image of the family gathered around a radio as they might around the fireside, with, where the home was seen as a retreat from urban life and all its pressures. Um, so the radio being described a focus of interior space and family pleasure, that's more again. So as broadcasters developed a better understanding of their audience's practices, their scheduling changed. So um, the early approach to radio programming served the imagined version of the housewife and a routine of housework and child rearing. But Moores describes this being impractical for some, again, again given the relatively fixed state of a wireless set in the home and the busy housewife's ability to make time to listen. So it's worth noting that the broadcasters transition to a better understanding of the significance of peak time evening listening, like the archers, when families would be more likely to be gathered during a mealtime. So in the eyes of the audience, um, the significance of the archers transmitting at peak evening time might account for any sense of an imagined community. Um, so that's a um, theory of um, Benedict Anderson's. 
of, of the idea of listeners all engaged in similar acts of mealtime or at least family time. So if we follow this thread, the listeners are not only gathered as a family around the hearth of the physical technology, but also nationally. So we think when we listen live, we think of ourselves as part of a national listenership. So as Anderson would have it, such self-awareness in the audience means that our reception and response can be perceived as collective, not just amongst family members visible to us while we listen, but also in the larger sense of the broadcaster's family of listeners. Um, and that's kind of significant when we come to some of the findings later. And then um, my lit review kind of trails off into notes, but essentially um, I kind of then fast forward a few decades to um, work exploring the context of radio in an age of digital, digital media and on-demand listening. Um, um, let me just think what might be relevant from this. So there's quite a lot of interesting work that I'm, you know, I've been reading. I haven't quite, kind of quite distilled yet into proper paragraphs of writing around um, how uh, action is invoked in radio um, and the idea that somebody has to say, oh, look at his gun. But actually, a lot of that isn't necessarily done as clumsily as that in the, in the Archers now, because I think um, audiences have kind of developed ways of understanding the meaning without, without scriptwriters having to do that necessarily. Um, we might argue otherwise, I think. Um, so I think I can kind of skip to the end of this section. So as much as his radio is historically rooted in the home, the focus of the article and the, the track I take, I'm going to take on this, is to come to a better understanding of the meanings and significance of such audio media given the development in technologies. So um, there's a um, uh, uses and gratifications theory is something some of you may have come across before, um, which is essentially the media theory, which kind of says the idea of mass media and everybody being having media projected at them and given to them is not, uh, and media effects isn't necessarily valid. What, what is more valid, is the an idea of how people are gratified and how people use media to do certain things for themselves in their lives um, and so that I, th and I think that's a better description now where we are with things like the archers and the way people um, use the archers in you know for um, escapism and things like that but also the way that we are able to listen in such a myriad of ways that suits our life and that's something that comes out of the survey um, so we're not all tied to listening to it live at seven o'clock, essentially. Um, uh, and then quite a lot of people talked about how it helps them listen more around their lifestyle. Um, okay, I'm going to skip past that and get into the actual research questions of the survey. So back to the 29 uh, paper. So I was interested in how, how people listen to the answers today. Um, does listening context and the habit affect our association with the show and what the listeners get out of it and that kind of thing. Um, so I approached this with an online survey through Google Forms and many of you, I guess, will have uh, completed that. So that stayed live for about a month. It was shared on Facebook groups and Twitter and it resulted in uh, about two and a half thousand responses. So um, that was fantastic. Um, 
the survey was obviously also uh, self-selecting as a result. So more Archers fans rather than people who might just overhear and grumble about it, um, which is kind of really what I covered this year in a way. Um, and we do have to recognise that this is part of the listening experience for some people. Um, and it also obviously only represents the digitally engaged, um, either in how they saw it advertised, because I was advertising on Twitter and Facebook, or their ability to do an online form. So I did try and get the form out in Radio Times, but wasn't able to do that. Um, and it's worth noting that a larger funded study would probably also include complementary methods, such as interviews, as well as just a survey. Um, right. So I'll keep this relatively fast moving through the findings. Um, Oh, ah, yes, that's because I've added a line, so. Um, so any questions, um, jot them down. I don't know if we're doing Q&A at the end. So the first question on the survey was, are you an active or a passive listener? So um, un unsurprisingly, um, as I say, because people were digitally engaged and the technology now allows us to more actively um, go out and, and make an effort to go and find what we're looking for um, and find the uh, BBC Sounds or BB, uh, it was more iPlayer at the time actually but now BBC Sounds as much as we grumble about it I think people are getting used to it um, so people make efforts to listen to it whether it's on the radio or on catch up later and obviously a lot of people find find the time as well to kind of take themselves away from their family into a quiet room to listen to it. I'm not quite sure how that's playing out with um, self-isolation. Maybe that's something to discuss at the end. Um, when do you listen to the Archers? So, um, kind of a bit of a mix really. Um, so, some people listen to it live when it's on the radio um, afterwards and you know, unsurprisingly, again, if, you, if you're completing a survey on, on this kind of thing, then you, you probably have a, a healthy obsession or an unhealthy obsession maybe with the show and might well be listening to it both um, perhaps because um, some of the people in the survey, you know, talked about having um, felt that they hadn't quite concentrated when it was on live and wanted to kind of listen again as a bit of a catch up. So how do you listen to the archers? Um, so I gave lots of options for people to select from here um, and there were a few, I think there was an option to add additional ones as well. But, um, and I believe in this survey question as well actually since um, I've looked at the data, but I, I believe you could uh, tick as many boxes as you wanted. So um, what does that say, a thousand of those, so around half, more than half of them of, uh, of those who responded said they do listen on the radio, but they also um, are often catching up as well. Um, uh, I was kind of, I, I used um, Amazon Echo, I used an Alexa um, in the house, in the kitchen to listen to it to catch up. Sometimes I was a little bit surprised, maybe that not more people were saying that, as that seems to be quite a um, quickly emerging piece of kit in the house for a lot of people. Um, so, you know, all kinds of methods that people are using to listen to the show one way or another. I want to go on to the next slide. So what else are you doing while listening to The Archers? Um, so again, I think I left um, it optional for, you know, there were option, options I came up with, and these are the ones that I came up with, um, and then additional ones that people could add. Um, 
but it's quite interesting looking thinking about the Moore's work on radio and the idea of it being something that's situated around um, activities like kitchen activities that um, that that is still quite strongly held as a as a, partly to do with the scheduling at seven o'clock in the evening but maybe also there's something about the nostalgic association with the kitchen that, that people will put it on whilst they're in the kitchen or whilst they're doing other things but obviously now we increasingly have um as well people who are driving listening either because it's on their commute home or because they're sticking it on a podcast because they know they've got a long drive or they've got you know some time and they can now opt to listen in their car um, let me just have a quick look at anything else. Yeah, um, so yeah, it matches a lot of the childhood overhearing accounts that people gave. So it may be that we're subconsciously drawn to holding on to that feeling. Um, But, but you, you know, these top three categories are also a factor of when the show is on, like I say, when we were talking about scheduling earlier and what it coincides with and how it becomes a part of the furniture of, of everyday routines. Um, so kitchen work, eating a meal together, commuting. Um, I was actually quite surprised at how many people said they stopped to sit or even set aside particular time just to listen. So 500 for each of those responses. Um, and then there was a very long tail of additional responses. People added all kinds of things. Um, what's the most unusual place you've listened to the archers? So I turned this into a word cloud. So I think this was an open field possibly. And um, so it presented as a word cloud. Uh, the top 40 words are shown here, um, ignoring some of the other words like archers, listen, etc. Holiday features 120 times. So um, the idea of take, taking it away. So on one level, you have to think about what, what do we mean by unusual? And I suppose we mean out of the what we consider to be typical listening practice or, or the associative listening practice that we have. So the idea of taking it out of the home um, on holiday is unusual for people and weird in a way. And that tells us quite a lot, I suppose, about um, the usualness and the association we have with the home and comfort and the archers being part of that. Um, so again, with that idea of the walkman and the personalised experience being able to travel with us, but this is something extra than just our music of choice. It's a slice of the home that we take away with us. So it's kind of home is where the heart is or home is where you take your archers, essentially, maybe. Um, and, and, and actually a lot of people said that they, that they didn't necessarily listen in unusual places at all. One of the problems with this question is that it kind of invited people to kind of outdo each other with some weird place that they've listened as well. So I'm not using it very heavily in the journal article because um, it kind of added that, that level of competition almost in the respondents. Um, do you feel differently about the show depending on where you listen to it? So again, I was trying to... Um, get this sense of whether it is something that we associate with home and um, most people said no they didn't necessarily feel differently about it so quite like again I kind of tend to think that this supports the idea that you you take it with you and it's a, it's a it's a slice of something comfortable that you take with you wherever you go yeah maybe it's a bit of a security blanket as 
um, when you're on your commute and it's busy and it's crowded and, and it's noisy, um, you've got that to hold on to that you associate with family or comfort or disappearing into the archer's world. Um, um, and that these no's are also people who literally just type no. So it doesn't count anybody who said no and then qualified it with more, more of an answer. So there were probably more no's than rising to around 1,800, I think. Um, so that's 74% of respondents that said it, it didn't really, they, they didn't really felt they, they felt differently about it. And then has there been any change in your listening habits since you first started? And if so, why? So, um, here there was kind of a variety of responses. So clearly more of an analysis job for me, which I'm kind of in the path in the middle of. It's not something that you can really create a word from because it doesn't really show anything useful, but looking at the responses, talked about the way their habits change with their lifestyle and changing daily routine. And also as a result of the catch-up technologies offer to listen anywhere, anytime. So people talking about how they're, they used to listen to it whilst they were doing their kids' bath time, but now they obviously don't need to do that. And so they don't listen to it at that time, but the technology allows them to listen whenever they want. So maybe there's less, an, less of an association now with it being a family thing. It's much more of an isolated thing. And it means that you're not subjecting your family to it when you listen. The idea of the headphones is that you, or you can listen wherever or go wherever. A lot of people talked about finding a place in the house where they would listen on their phone or their iPad or their laptop or whatever, that it was more of a kind of a me time rather than a, a family time. That's kind of what's presenting itself in the data room. Um, earliest memories of hearing or listening to the archers. Um, so this was an open question and people talked about childhood, parents, background, Sundays, cars, background sounds. So variants of the world child, variants of the word child came up about 544 times. Um, so fewer people talked about picking it up from friends or other social influences. So it's much more rooted in family. Um, and, you know, um, that could be good memories of li having listening to it with your family or your grandparents or kind of memories of having to listen to it being bored in the back of the car. Um, but I think whatever the case I think there's still something very powerfully nostalgic for a lot of people that keeps them listening, I think, or roots them in the show at least. Um, and then the biggest event in the arts was to make an impact on you as a listener. Um, yeah, it's interesting because some of these questions I asked and then looking at the survey responses, I've realised that some of the questions don't necessarily relate to the um, um, research question quite so much as I thought they would do when I kind of seeing the data. Um, but obviously 893 people said Helen's death, uh, sorry, Helen's death, um, the Helen story and things like death and yeah, <laughs> um, jumping the gun a bit there maybe. Uh, maybe, maybe that will be uh, a storyline in the next couple of months. You know, um, or uh, Nigel's death, obviously, or anybody's death has been uh, impactful for them. Um, so those kind of things are the things that stick in people's memory, but um, maybe also a sense that saying anything other than Helen would suggest that we'd overlooked it as significant. So um, one of the things I'm thinking about when I look at survey responses is the responses people give, but also again trying to unpick why people are saying those things sometimes to get a sense of where spikes might be coming from. Um, 
so um and I, I didn't know if there might be a sense about one-upmanship to people demonstrating being a longer time listener by quoting an event that had happened a long time ago but actually i don't think i've really seen that too much um how well do you know the characters um most people said unsurprisingly that they felt they knew the characters very well again you know obsessive fans will have been listening for a long time and have got past that point of not knowing which one's Ed and not knowing which one's Will, which I still struggle with. Um, all that kind of thing. Um, so how does, uh, and then how does listening to the archers make you feel? So, um, so this is kind of a, one of the more interesting ones, you know, people talking about it making them feel very comfortable um, and hold on a second hold on right that wasn't exactly a small child in a yellow t-shirt about to run in the back of the room, but it wasn't far off. Um, so I find it, um, I find it interesting that what non-listeners perceive as dull, we see as comfort. Um, and people listen to our, to or watch other drama media for thrills, excitement, tension, laughs, but we enjoy the comfort. And then, um, so this is interesting because, um, so last week, and uh, this is my notes from 2019, someone on the uh, Facebook group asked um, why there wasn't any mention of Brexit in the show. And everyone replied they were happy about that, that we used the show partly to escape all of that. And of course, fast forward a year, and our new Brexit is coronavirus. And people have talked about whether um, coronavirus should be mentioned in the show or not. And there was some speculation that we were having on Twitter about they, whether they would just go into rather than topical inserts a archer's alternate reality where where it doesn't exist and then you return back to the real reality i don't know end of the year or something um and um it will be interesting i suppose to to get a sense of how much we still think of it as escapist when coronavirus appears in the archers and actually at the moment we've got some quite nasty storylines with um the horses um which so you go to the archers for the comfortable and the escapist, but actually there's a different type of tension in there. Um, so are we escaping? I don't know. Um, but nonetheless, I think one of the one of the one point I think to finish on is that one of the things that's come out of the um, survey that I've been kind of mulling over is that. Um, uh, the Benedict Anderson idea of the imagined community of everybody listening together. A lot of uh, one of the things that has come out is that people listen and they feel or they sit, situate themselves within Ambridge as part of that community of the people in Ambridge and they kind of imagine themselves being part of that. But then, equally, just as strongly, they imagine themselves as part of a listening community, partly because you know, having selected these people having selected themselves through Facebook and Twitter they know that they're involved in those kind of conversations on Facebook and Twitter. So they imagine self, themselves being part of these two families, Ambridge and the audience listenership, really. Um, and I think I will probably 
Yes, there was also some stuff about how do you talk to others about the archers? Why do you listen to the archers? Um, and actually, similarly, people talked about um, being interested in the characters and the storylines. Um, so finally, just to conclude, one more slide. Whoop. So much of the practice of listening is still rooted in the traditional radio format, whether it's DAB or FM or built around everyday practices such as kitchen work. So this makes me think of how the internet is argued by many scholars to be supplementing rather than replacing other social experiences. But practices have changed, either because people's lifestyle or everyday routine has changed or because they're using the digital options to catch up. So we might assume the top three activities people do in combination, so kitchen, eating, driving, are live. Evidence that people's early experiences of listening during childhood are reconstituted ongoing. So what I don't know is if this is a constant or it moves in waves. So do we listen in childhood, ease off around the middle. So this year I presented this kind of timeline of how we end up listening obsessively. So the findings also build on some of the theory I mentioned at the start, but here we have a, a sense of the home traveling out of the house that's on holiday, for example, but people saying that didn't change their experience really of the show. Um, so using that, that idea again of using it as a comfort blanket. And then finally, Archer's listeners are passionate, um, which you won't be surprised to hear, and they'll go to lengths to ensure that they don't miss episodes and new digital media methods allow them to ensure that they don't miss out. So this is evidenced partly in how many people said that they set time aside to listen, so 500 people. Um, and in a world of second screening, where we often watch TV while on Twitter or Facebook, that's, you know, that's quite significant that people are actually just finding the time. Um, and I think I'll probably end there. Um, and there's a final slide of some more uh, references from the uh, previous set of slides from 2019. So, thank you. Thank you so much, Jerome. That was really great. And there was some really good uh, chat going on when it was happening as well. Let me just unshare your screen so we can get everybody back there. That was really good, really lovely. Nothing better than a paper just about ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that came up quite a lot, and I can see it on my screen here. Um, Jess, when you say about what people were doing when they were listening to the archers, Helen Burroughs said, did nobody say that they were knitting? Because there's usually, I can see five or six people knitting during this session here. So did that not come up in any of the responses? Um, do you know what? I don't know. So the way I've gone through the responses, because I've got two and a half thousand of them, I think for each of the questions I've where there were open responses, I picked a sample and I'm not necessarily using going through all 2000, but I've kind of sampled two or 300 or whatever and gone through those as, as kind of indicative and usually get a strong pattern. You know, the idea, for anybody who's done this kind of analysis of big data sets or anything, the idea is typically that you, you start looking at it and you kind of think about stopping at the point when the big patterns emerge from it. And that's where I am with it. And I don't know if knitting and crocheting has come up or anything like craft has come up actually. Um, I don't remember coding it, for example, as a specific code in InVivo where I'm analysing it. But I will look out for that um, because you might imagine so. But then, I don't know, maybe as much as we think of knitting and crafting as relatively passive and something you can do as a second screen activity, maybe 
it would draw too much tension away from what you're doing at that point. To, to have to listen and think at the same time. It depends what you're doing. It depends on the pattern sometimes, yeah. I think. Uh, Suzanne Hardy is uh, knitting a fancy hem today, which uh, to be very archers. It's beautiful. <laughs> Absolutely beautiful. Now I've heard um, with during the time of lockdown that um, you know radio, particularly radio four listenership, has gone up. The trust ratings for radio have also gone up. So there's a higher approval rating now than than before, um, and so you know BBC is kind of back in people's favour in that way. Um, and I was wondering also, with more people at home, whether that's going to increase the listenership and we'll get those fabled young listeners perhaps as well. Because I, I kind of had my own lockdown as a child, stuck in my grandmother's kitchen <laughs> and having to listen that way. What do you think, Nicola, or Jess, on that? So I'm just looking with absolute horror at people saying that they listen to the archers when out walking because the only time i've done it i've done it once i had it on earphones i got off a train and i was walking through manchester piccadilly and i fell over so badly i gave myself whiplash because i'm not like i don't have that kind of spatial awareness so i just literally like i was like walking into people it's amazing if you can both listen and walk then i think that's um that's a whole new level i, I don't know i mean walk, we talk. i also swear underneath my breath as well I, I think it's underneath my breath and it obviously it isn't because other people are near me <laughs> i think um i think the thing about we talked about this particularly with um claire astbury in reading about do is there the ambient listening phenomena still and I think it was Claire, you said that, um, God, that was quite scarce, wasn't it? Claire um, was, you know, actually, no, not anymore. I, I only had the map of the characters because you sort of are a hostage in your, in your house and the, and the way that the broadcast and you'd listen to it. But you were saying, no, you, you, you'd be more likely to listen on headphones. So it wouldn't leak out, you know, it wouldn't like. Yeah, and I, um... I was going to ask a question about that. I think it is, I, I, I'm concerned that we don't get those sort of accidental new generation of listeners post-digital. Because even mm. if I listen live, I'm listening live on my phone through the Sounds app, often on head, not always, but often on headphones. In fact, since Reading, I've been more aware of trying to not have it on headphones so that I can maybe do that ambient thing to my daughter. But she's usually listening to something else on her bones or it's in a different room anyway. So there isn't the same captive audience. And I, I, I wonder whether or not we will see a generational phenomenon that when people were more able to listen individually, that kind of accidental ambient training or, I don't know, uh, brainwashing, um, you know, has, has slowed down and whether that makes a difference to future listenership. Uh, but I think that will be a sort of 10 or 15 year time lag. So that's a longitudinal mm. study for the future. Very longitudinal. I think also, um, I mean, we talked about this again. So the live listen and the thing about uh, in, you know, individualized listening, but then collective listening brings something else to it. I think this is something that I find really fascinating because even the most solitary of activities, so, you know, you might think knitting was a solitary activity, but people do sort of stitch and bitch, book clubs, you know, reading is my absolute hideaway, you know, it's just me and the book, but book clubs came up because people wanted both to 
So it's a solitary activity of listening to the radio, but then we come together as a collective. And so I think there are four, you know, obviously it's not just be a casual person, but once you're sort of in the, in the sort of, you know, marinated in the madness of the Archer's fandom, there's all kinds of ways that you can be active. It, back to Jez's point, you know, two thirds of his two and a half thousand people were highly active about their listening. It's not just something that washes over you, you're doing something about it. And then that links to Helen's paper on creative fandom de dum de dum de dum from Reading. I've just had a look at the time and it's actually quarter to 12, so I think we need to crack on. Nightmare. But I will say we've got some very good indoctrinators within our group, Karen Pollock, Louise Gillies, uh, particularly come to mind of those that have indoctrinated <laughs> other members of their family. Okay, <laughs> there was well, a wonderful so... question at uh, the British Library. Somebody saying, I'm, you know, I'm worried that my daughter hasn't started listening to the arches yet. Will it ever happen? Uh, that was a, a fantastic question. But I think we need to go on to Bronwyn now. Are we doing Bronwyn or are we doing James? I think let's go to Bronwyn first. Well, in that case, I need to sign off because I literally can't. So I just wanted to, to apologise in Sheffield I am a dog person but I'm currently without a dog and we lost four dogs in five years having rescued them and loved them so I'm going to disconnect but I'll pop on at the end so someone send me a message some I, I literally just can't so uh, enjoy Bronwyn and I'll see you later okay Bronwyn I can see that you're there if you want to unmute yourself and then share your screen we can start thank you very much is that working? It is. Do you want to go to a uh, slide slideshow? Yeah, and start from the beginning, this. but we can see. It. Okay. Okay. Good to go. So at the conference in April last year, I looked at bereavement in animal owners for which there is limited but interesting evidence. I'm a mental health nurse and I've always been fascinated by the relationships that we humans have with our animals. And what happens when our animals die is part of that relationship. The loss of my very special horse after 27 years together made me focus even more on this particular area. Okay, there we go. Humans have formed relationships with animals for thousands of years. There are differences between simple ownership and attachment and emotional involvement with animals. More than half of UK households have a companion animal. Many have a number of animals, uh, often of different species. Our animals can be considered as our friends or as family members. Many people involve animals in celebrations and may buy them presents. And right now they may be even more important to us than ever as companions. So going back to celebrations and presents, Jack Woolley in the Archers would always make sure that his dog Captain had his own Christmas dinner. I think there may be a few of us that do that as well. I came across this list of dogs in, um, that were in the Archers in 1964, the year I was born. Um, have we got that many in the, in the Archers at the moment in, in 2020? One of the recommendations from Rachel Daniels and 
Dr. Annie Madison Warren's excellent paper in 2018 was that the archers needed more animals and more species. And I would agree because for me, more animals means more grief and more bereavement and more to get my teeth into. The research tells us that those who form close bonds with animals tend to be seen as doing so instead of having relationships with people and can be suspected of being unable to engage satisfactorily with other humans. But this isn't the case, as most of us who are close to our animals are generally sociable, loving and able to build relationships with other people. That's lucky. And generally, this is heard in the archers. When animals die, there's going to be an impact. For some, it's as bad as when a, a close human dies. And for some, it's worse. The experience of grief when there is a loss of a fellow important human is well documented. And there are a number of different models of grief, some of which don't actually have very good evidence bases. There is less in the literature and less understanding generally about the grief process for an owner or, or a keeper when an animal dies. What research there is shows that the type of death for an animal uh, that an animal has can have a different effect on us as human beings when we care about them. Surprisingly, those of us that choose euthanasia generally have significantly closer attachments to our animals. And we then go on to support, uh, to report significantly less grief than those whose animals died of natural causes or from accidents. Owners whose animals died in accidents tended to or could have extended grief reactions. And now with COVID-19, our owners, um, uh, uh, us as owners, we're unlikely to be able to pre be pre present when an animal is put down. This will probably have significant effects for the experience of grief for many owners, because that's going to change the whole picture. Going back to the archers, remember when Ed shot Will's dog, Baz? His dog being shot would have probably had a bigger impact for Will than if he'd actually had the animal put to sleep at some stage, and the archers didn't really pick that up. It's not just those who have companion animals. We're talking about a farming community in Ambridge here. The grief at the loss of animal or animals also affects those who own or work with farm animals, those who work in animal welfare and in the wildlife sector. So we might think about Kirsty here. This is difficult for some people to understand that farmers may experience grief when they're pretty slaughter possibly. In the archers, this is possibly uh, or perhaps demonstrated by the Grundys. We're used to the details each year of the killing and the plucking and the dressing of turkeys in the run up to Christmas, but not all turkeys are the same. A turkey destined for the Christmas table in 1989 was given the name Clint and a reprieve by a then young William Grundy. And in November 2014, George named one turkey Lucky. For farmers and those who breed animals, animals are a source of income, but the significance for individuals is not dis diminished. The relationships may be different, but many farmers hold the welfare and well-being of their animals as very important. Attachments are still formed, as demonstrated by some animals being given names, and we certainly hear about that in the archers. So there was Otto the bull that attacked Tony, and also Pepper, Ed's ram. Jazza could also sometimes be heard talking very lovingly about his sows, or as he put it, his girls. He also has other lady friends, but we won't go into that this morning. 
Just this week, I was thinking about how different animals can be seen perhaps as more valuable or their death as having more emotional impact. Take the recent death of Eccles, for example. That turned into a bit of a joke. Was this because he was only a bird or was it because he was elderly? This made me think about how our current situation, a daily reporting of human deaths and how we seem to put value on some lives more than others. The very nature of lifespans being different for humans and most animals means that people will very often outlive their animals, sometimes many times over. An example of this is Peggy Woolley and her succession of cats. And some people might like, like to see Hilda Ogden go quicker than her average expected feline lifespan. Different types of loss can give rise to different types of grief experiences. And we're gonna cover some of those next. So first of all, anticipatory loss. This is where an owner or keeper knows that an animal will die or will need to be euthanized at some point. And I wrote this before Joe's death. When Bartleby started ailing before Jem arrived, Joe was probably considering the worst outcome at that time and may well have been experiencing anticipatory loss. This would also be made more complex due to it probably linking to Joe's own mortality, thus making it even more complicated. Luckily, when Jem turned up and gave Bartleby company, things perked up. Anticipatory loss can be helpful though. It is painful, but it can also forewarn owners who may then experience less grief when the animal actually does die. Ambiguous loss. Ambiguous loss is one of the most difficult grief reactions. It can be caused by separation from an animal, perhaps due to a relationship breakup, moving accommodation, having to give the animal up due to an inability to keep it or to afford it anymore, or theft or the animal becoming lost. Not knowing what has happened to an animal can complicate the grief reaction and people may spend time ruminating about what could have been done differently. Scruff was an example of this when he went missing in the flood. Linda and Robert didn't know what had happened to him. They didn't know if he was alive or dead. Scruff then showed up at Christmas and then died peacefully asleep in the garden the next year. According to the research, Linda and Robert could have had difficult and prolonged grief reactions when he died of natural causes. But Linda is often pragmatic when the chips are down, as evidenced by the amazing current storyline. And she had already dealt with the ambiguous loss of Scruff and perhaps was able to deal with the second loss when he did die with more ease. And then there's disenfranchised grief. Disenfranchised grief, grief um, links back to the relationships that many of us have with animals and how we have bonds with them. Those bonds often aren't recognised by others or society. Therefore, when an animal dies, others underestimate or don't understand the impact and the subsequent grief response for someone. Somebody's just got their mic on. I, uh, I don't know who it is. If you've got it, could you just mute it for me? Worse still, people may be ridiculed for their feelings and may feel they have to hide their grief from friends, from work colleagues and even family. Well-meaning but unhelpful, if not downright painful comments can be made such as, it was only an animal or you can get another one. We never heard in that very famous storyline that Helen and Henry had animals at the time that Rob was around. I may stand corrected on that, but... Helen's pony comment 
comet wasn't mentioned or wasn't isn't mentioned there. So I presume luckily wasn't part of her life, Helen's life, when Rob turned up. But if they had, that family had had an animal, Rob may well have used it to manipulate and hurt Helen, as many abused women report that partners have threatened to harm or get rid of animals, or have actually harmed or killed them. Women often stay in abusive relationships due to their fears about theirs or their children's animals, and we know that that's going to be a huge, even more current issue right now. In the UK, we've had a number of events in recent years that have hit farmers hard. The last foot and mouth epidemic in 2001 saw 6 million cows and sheep killed. The ongoing issues of TB in cattle, we often hear about tuberculosis in the archers. The floods in recent years and in, uh, in, in the archers. Some farmers may have bred certain family lines for several human generations, especially dairy farmers. And the culling out or loss of herds can be very hard to bear, with some farmers and other workers developing symptoms and trauma that would meet the definition for PTSD. The loss of the herd for Pat and Tony was difficult. The sale of the herd and the resulting quietness of the farm was really hard for them. And those who keep livestock also keep working and companion animals. So there are different levels of attachment and meaning in each case. So dual grief. Topper was Nigel Pardis's horse and after Nigel's death was sold to Shula. He was put down at the end of July 2018 as an emergency due to liver failure. Shula lied and told Elizabeth that Topper went very peacefully when in fact it was an emergency and traumatic. The euthanasia of large animals is different to small animals. It's often traumatic and it's difficult and it can be risky. Shuler acknowledged that Topper was a link for Freddie to his father, and this is often, very often the case in the loss of an animal. They can be a link to other humans who've died or who are no longer in our lives. Unresolved grief for the lost human can be triggered when the animal dies at a later date. There can be further issues if the animal dies from the same or similar disease to that which the human died. Ritual is an important part of the process after death. There are a lack of rituals after an animal dies, which can compound problems and any disenfranchised grief. The loss of a large animal or large animals brings further problems and possibly trauma. Again, Topper demonstrated this issue. Using the hunt for disposal of the body was suggested. He would have been used as food for the hounds, seen as appropriate for a horse who is hunted but Freddie wanted him buried at Lower Loxley and the difficulty of burying, burying horses was acknowledged. So what can keep us or help us as animal owners when the inevitable happens? There are a number of things that we can do or support others to do when they lose animals, which can help with the grief process. Keeping an item known as a transitionary object, either something belonging to the animal or some part of the animal, such as ashes. Behind me here are some of my horse's ashes, only some of them. Um, I still have them. Fur clipping, a piece of mane or tail, sometimes made into lockets and bracelets. Writing, making albums, framing pic photographs, planting commem commemorative plants or trees, reminiscing ceremonies. Um, and reminiscing and, and scattering of ashes, of remembering, 
And my friend and vet, who's here with us today, um, who also put my, my horse Badger down, I'll talk about that in a minute, sends me a text on the anniversary of the day that my, my horse went each year. So at a time when the Grundy family was struggling, Joe took it upon himself to kill his beloved ferrets. He bludgeoned them to death with a hammer. That was one of the most traumatic scenes for me in the archers that I've ever been through. How dreadful and shocking was that episode? But then again, many vets want to and do put their own animals to sleep themselves. They want to do that one last thing that's important for their animal. So was Joe actually that much different? I would just add that I don't condone the bludgeoning to death of your loved ones with a hammer. I just want to make that really clear, especially at the moment with lockdown. Vets statistically deal with death much more than those of us working in human health, although this may be changing right now for many of my NHS colleagues. It's a repetitive and frequent occurrence, on average, I think around four times a week for a vet. Vets and veterinary staff are often affected by the death of animals, their own and other people's. Vets have to manage the animal, its welfare, and also help those who own the animal. And now with COVID-19, euthanasia of animals is to be done differently with our owners present. Staff may build significant relationships with animals and their owners, often over many years, and experience their own grief when an animal dies. When my old horse was put to sleep, my vet and friend, Rebecca, and the veterinary nurse, and I all sat on the ground with him after he'd gone and cried. I didn't get this upset last time. Vets often work and live in the same communities as demonstrated by Alistair. Alistair had relationships with many of those in Ambridge, both professionally and personally. This would make his experiences of death of the animals he cares for more complex, especially when he's currently experiencing other losses in his own life. Animals are important to many of us, including those in the archers. The death of an animal is a real bereavement and should be treated as such. Our relationships with them should be recognised and honoured. So we've been thinking about endings, but endings are also beginnings. Over four or five years ago, my beloved horse Badger, pictured here a few weeks before he was put to sleep by my good friend, Rebecca. This was a planned event that we planned for about two years that was very difficult, but it led me to becoming interested, perversely, in bereavement and animal owners and to several published papers with Rebecca and to being here today to talk to you about this. And I give you Badger, thank you very much. Thank you so much for that, Bonwin. It was absolutely lovely again. I'm just gonna see how many do we have stay in the room for us, Cara, this time? So we've got 68 with us okay um, now, yeah there were a few that did drop out but it's it's a beautiful paper and you speak about it so eloquently and i think again in a way that everybody can really uh really relate to a massive group hug uh to maggie who had to put her cat to sleep this morning which is just so so sad maggie it's just oh big hug big hug lots of questions there about the ferrets and um I think the quote of the, the session goes to um, Annie Madison Warren that Peggy is a cockroach that will outlive us all. <laughs> so 
there an animal we hadn't perhaps considered in this context yeah. before? An animal more than others? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good point, Danny. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, I grew up on a farm and animals were a massive part of our lives. We had so many dogs and they variously lived in the kitchen or in the outhouses, depending on how cheeky they were. But they were huge in our life and it just it astounds me that there aren't more of those companion animals that are actually there as proper silent characters or perhaps not so silent characters for us. It's yeah. just it just doesn't ring true to me at all. And um there should be there should be a much bigger amount of, of animals and we should be hearing about the grief a lot more. They've got yeah. some bits in there, but it's it's such a key bit um of of our relationship with animals. They're they're missing a, a trick with it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree they really are. And yeah, some of our farm dogs and we still talk about some of those farm dogs from 20, 30 years ago. They're just legends and uh yeah, really missed. And then also a lot of people saying that actually and I remember this from growing up, that a lot of farming children would be given a pet or a sheep or something like that. So it's Peppa Pig. Um, so you'd have a pet or your first bit of livestock. And that's a real training into that kind of animal husbandry. And again, there isn't much of that in this either. Um, Henry had a toy rabbit, <laughs> but that, was, that seems to be sort of as far as it got. Yeah, he would have had, you know, or will have, you know, much different relationships. And, and Helen's, um, you know, she's horsey. Mm. She, you'd expect a small wee pony. You know, that that's what you would expect in in that environment at the moment. I mean, they're so they're so sort of not there. Hello, I'm back. Sorry, uh, they're so not there that they've given, you know, Silent Ben Bess, and that's the first time really. And and it's you know, in lieu of a personality, I think really that animal. So. <laughs> That's, that's, that could be a thing, yeah, a uh, uh, pet's character prop for, for those somewhat lacking. I must say, so time is, is ticking on, but I mean, there's a huge amount of love for what you've just shared with us, Bronwyn. Thank you so much. And you. I, I'm I so must sorry, be... darling. That's twice I had to not see it, so, you know. Uh, what I was must really give a shout out, though, to Archer's Cats. Archer's Cats is such an amazing group on Facebook. I love it. I don't have a cat. I'm really allergic to the point of being hospitalised. And so I can vicariously have many hundreds of cats in my life. And I got very excited when I saw somebody pop up on screen called KJ. That's the name of my partner's cat. So it's, it's lovely that she's joined us for the other today as well. Uh, we will go straight first off now into um, the paper about insurgency, which we think I think could tell us a lot about uh, lockdown village life in Ambridge. Is there anything you want to say on this, Nicola, before I share the screen? Or as I, I just wanted to say back to the um, back to the death paper, the, the dog death paper. We'd had Abby talking about how you got your affairs in order for real people. And I had to, and I sat through that fine, but then the animal paper, my mum had to come out with me and it just did demonstrate that I'm less scared of their death than I am of, uh, of the dogs. Right, and um, I did have a, I had an intro for James, but since time is ticking, let's just listen no, to go it. On, no, say your intro, go on, go for it. Okay, so, thank you. So, this is an Easter egg for you all. We have not quite recovered from this paper at the British Library Conference. And if you, as you watch it, particularly if you watch the prize giving, when I still can't quite decide if he's some kind of complete crank who's made it all up. From the abstract stage, the paper was completely fresh and unique. 
and we thought it would be fun to view it again under these bizarre circumstances. Insurgency. What can, what can Ambridge? Oh, what can that teach Ambridge to prepare for a pandemic? Um, I yeah, I won't say anything more. Let's just watch it. Okay, as, let's as go in the chat. It. Oh, thank you. Hi, so my name is James Armstrong. I've been working for NATO and Afghanistan for about uh, 10 years. I could say, say before I start that my comments do not reflect NATO policy on our <laughs> So I want to take you into a dystopian vision of the future, Britain in 2026, a bitter insurgency across the country. US forces as part of an international coalition have been deployed across the country and in a forward oper operating base Forsetshire and regional command Falkersham, the 82nd Airborne Division have received reports of insurgent activity in a small settlement called Ambridge. Uh, you can see on the map that there's been a number of ID strikes around Ambridge, and there are reports of guerrilla fighters uh, based up there in the Hassock Hills. <laughs> so how likely is this scenario? Well, <laughs> In the event of an insurgency in the UK, there's actually a fair chance that Ambridge would be the site of uh, significant insurgent activity. Insurgencies over history have been predominantly rural-based. As Mao Zedong articulated, you need to uh, revolutionise the peasant, the peasant proletariat. Uh, we've seen uh, rural insurgencies uh, across the world, Afghanistan being the latest one. And uh, there are a number of key factors in, in Ambridge that make it actually a benign environment for an insurgent movement. You've got the rugged terrain, you've got the rugged terrain in the uh, Hatter Hills, which could provide a sanctuary for insurgents. Uh, you've got a fairly weak. Very weak infrastructure as well, which means that the government can't, can't really establish a long-term presence there. It's also, if you look at the map down here, Forsetshire uh, itself is a potential staging area for high-pressure attacks in major cities such as London, Oxford, and Birmingham. <laughs> so the U.S. Camera Insurgency Manual 2014 identifies five sources of insurgency. I think we can, in, in terms of Ambridge, I think we can dismiss the first three religion nationals and ethnicity. There are no indications that that is the case in Ambridge. But I think in, uh, in, in the final two, I think there's more grounds uh, for, for, for suggesting those might be causes of insurgent activity in Ambridge. You've got significant economic wealth differentials, the Aldridge's versus the Carters, you've got inequalities in land ownership and limited employment prospects. You've also got uh, indications of corruption. Uh, we've seen Forsyth land interference in local government. <laughs> so who would our insurgents be? Well, I spent, a, I, I, I spent a happy afternoon in Kabul trying to identify potential characters. So uh, the US counterinsurgency doctrine identifies four main groups of insurgents, uh, four main groups within an insurgent network. 
Uh, first of all, the leadership. There's a fair chance this wouldn't be based in Ambridge. It's likely to be based outside uh, Ambridge, uh, potentially in much more isolated location uh, in Perth, impervious to drone strikes. But you would have, a I think there's a fair chance that you would have a number of potential guerrilla fighters in Ambridge. Uh, the profile of these tends to be young men with poor employment prospects, Jasmine McCleary, Jamie Parks, Ed Grundy. But I think as well, I did, it didn't occur to me while I was writing this, uh, but I think there's a fair chance that Ember could be a particularly uh, successful <laughs> Supporting you have an auxiliary network uh, which is, tends to be made up of uh, disenfranchised clan or tribal networks, the Carters and the Hor Horribins potentially provide, providing auxiliary support. Uh, you also uh, tend to find the underground network, a, a close nexus between uh, an insurgent network and uh, underground illegal activity. So potentially the Grundy network, uh, their criminal activities could be financing uh, insurgents in, uh, in Amber. <laughs> So historically, the solution to insurgency is attempts to attempt to be very security focused. So in the past, the population of Ambridge would probably be relocated to a secure uh, village uh, in order to monitor their activities. But this, uh, particularly with Vietnam, this, uh, the, this. Uh, uh, doctrine was dis discredited, and a more comprehensive approach was uh, uh, was formulated, uh, which, which is based around four, uh, which is based around four main lines of effort. So, first of all, you have shape, uh, where you're looking at trying to shape the environment uh, through psychological operations, uh, through engaging uh, through, through engaging potential human intelligence sources. Then you have the clear phase, which is a more traditional security focus phase, where you're trying to eliminate or reintegrate potential guerrilla fighters. Ed Grundy would probably be droned at some point. <laughs> then finally, once you've cleared the area, you would have the hold phase, and uh, the, the international forces would, would withdraw, and you, uh, the host nation forces uh, would establish a presence in the area. So potentially Lieutenant uh, Hebden Lloyd and B.C. Harrison Burns uh, would be mobilized to secure the local population. And finally, the build phase, this is where we address the root causes. So potentially uh, you could have the government uh, uh, diversifying village council representation to uh, uh, to enfranchise uh, disaffected guerrilla fighters, and land reform potentially uh, the breakup of forfeiture uh, land. <laughs> but but throughout this, uh, but uh, U.S. Council's doctrine emphasizing throughout the need for a population-centric approach, particularly understanding the informal systems of political influence. And this word "informal" is key because in Afghanistan, what I've seen tend to happen is people focus on the formal power brokers. So in the case of Ambridge, they'd be engaging people like Brian, Neil, Alan, and they'd also be uh, engaging the formal communications network. And unfortunately, in Afghanistan, and I think in Ambridge, this would do nothing to address the root causes. Uh, engaging someone like Brian, whose activities in Borsuch land potentially represent a, a, a root cause of the insurgency. And I would recommend uh, uh, US, US forces in Ambridge looking at the work of Nicola Headlam and her work on, informal, on, in, on engaging informal uh, power brokers such as Penny and Neil and informal communication networks. And Ed Grundy, King of Ambridge! <laughs> So what was the point of all this? Uh, well, I think, there, I think there are potentially lessons that could be learned from Ambridge and could be applied uh, to uh, to uh, campus safety training in the future. Uh, the photo below is from a, a simulated Afghan village in Norfolk. Uh, it wasn't very, it wasn't very effective as a uh, 
as a training simulation. And the problem was it prioritized uh, the, uh, the physical aspects of village life without necessarily engaging the inform uh, without necessarily providing training on informal networks and uh, the need to engage the local population uh, and understand them uh, using potentially uh, the informal networking techniques developed by Nicole Heaven. So that's it. Thank you. <laughs> Wonderful. Let me just get the screen back up again. Sorry. Folks. I just love that so much. It's amazing, isn't it? It was just we when we got that abstract in, I was just like, what is this? I just say if you look at the bit on the YouTube um of of us giving him the prize, I was literally like, I just don't know if you're some guy from Stoke on Trent. <laughs> We feel really, really, no, you really is fine, or whatever, yeah. <laughs> and then, fantastic. The other, people may not know this, because this is Academic Archer's um, kind of folklore. He was extremely attracted to Kara. <laughs> so we went to the pub, and there was some of the most awkward chatting up I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> oh, that's not fair. He's charming. He's a charming man. He had to lie yeah. to come to us. He had to pretend that his brother was getting married so he could have extended leave <laughs> yeah so he then he then did a second abstract and was going to come back and we were like well what's he said now his brother's having a baby but he, <laughs> he genuinely came by chinook helicopter <laughs> Oh, it was fantastic. But we were thought that's a timely one to show because who knows what is going to happen in a lockdown situation? Who knows who's going to be coming to the fore in terms of their resources and formal and informal power and all the rest of it. Could there be an uprising in Ambridge against BL for land massing and all the rest of it? It could be, I think it's a useful one, a timely one to share with you as we go into the, the months of lockdown in Ambridge. I think yeah. just to agree, Tim Versalotti, that holds up really well. It really does, doesn't it? Because this is exactly, I mean, now we're all such experts in kind of the virus-led epidemiology. And I've been saying to you for years, you know, that, that, that um, the network stuff is very often used within, you know, contact tracing is essentially what I've been doing for Ambridge for six years. You know, that's the, the you know, all that stuff is, they, all, they use a network approach to, to, to contract trace for this stuff. So some of you saying, can you have the link to that again? I'm just going to post the link now. Um, and I'm not sure where, when you click onto that link, it may just come up at the end of that. I'm not sure. But it's in that session, he's the first one on it. So just go back to the beginning if it does open up later on. But it is a chat on YouTube about the eye patch, and I have to admit. So this is one of my... This is one of the most hysterical academic archers memories I've got, which was we were a bit stressed before the BL uh, British Library Conference and everybody came really early. And I just, just, he just did the perimeter of the, of the square at the British Library before he came in. He genuinely sketched up like a fox the four sides and then came up and was like, hello, I'm James Armstrong. I was like, of course you are. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hilarious yeah he's fantastic it's absolutely i'm really glad the tech on that worked as well i thought i did text you nicola say can you hear me because i'm just here watching it you know just for my own pleasure if not but I'm i would just like to say it. then as we close 
James Armstrong, wherever you are, whatever your name was, thank you for that Easter egg. Definitely, definitely. So uh, we will close now. We are running over our omnibus time, which of course would never happen on Radio 4. We're being very unprofessional as ever. Uh, it was so wonderful to see so many of you here again. It's just a joy to have this time with you whilst we're in, living in isolation. Uh, Jim, have you got a question? An Easter bonnet competition tomorrow evening it's between 7:15 and 7:45 on twitter if you post the picture of your bonnet using hashtag archers easter parade and then you're also the judges you've got to um, like the bonnets you like and at the end the bonnet with the most likes wins now there's got to be a cutoff because otherwise it'll go on for weeks so <laughs> the competition is on 7:15 to 7:45 and then that's tomorrow tomorrow evening fantastic we have two very strong contenders here pam and nicola indeed i see them yes i <laughs> <laughs> put details on the archers academics and um, facebook page please do yes this has really cheered me up. I've put lipstick on for the first time in a month. I'm wearing my stupid hat. It's been a tonic. So lovely to see you all. See you next week. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye. 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 bye.